0: Well, this past week, we obviously commemorated Remembrance Day, and two of the events that usually come to mind in relatively recent history are the Great War, also known as World War I, and uh, World War II, and many of us have studied these events in school, and maybe you have a grandfather, a or great-grandfather, or grandparents that served in those, those um, world events, I want to tell a a quick story of one particular battle in order to lead into our uh, teaching series today, our teaching session. So this took place in in in, in 1915, so a little little over 100 years ago. Uh, The Canadian Expeditionary Forces got on boats, and they were sent to Europe. The soldiers were pretty much all green. They were inexperienced. Uh, Canada had never fought in a global conflict of this magnitude before. So the Canadian soldiers uh, were sent to France in order to help to liberate Europe from the invading Germans. In April of 1916, they were sent to Belgium to help push push back the invading uh, German army. And initially, it did not go well. First of all, it was it was an absolutely horrendous set of circumstances to fight in. There were muddy fields. The trees had been blown apart by artillery shells. Many of the trenches were filled waist-high with water. It was just an absolutely atrocious environment for these young Canadian soldiers to fight in. And they were constantly uh, experiencing the barrage of German artillery fire. So between June 2nd, and June 6th of 1916, the Germans so ferociously attacked the Canadians that there were over 8,000 casualties. So the second, third, fourth, fifth, and sixth. So in five days, over 8,000 casualties uh, on the battlefield. And one would expect that in their humanity, these soldiers probably thought, you know, let's, let's pack up. This is not our continent. Let's get back on the boats and let's go home. But instead, they fought back. Now, the reason why this particular event is familiar to me is because my own great-grandfather was killed. He was 28 years old. He was killed by a grenade on the first day of that battle on June the 2nd, uh, 1916, and left behind his young widow and three daughters, one of which ultimately became my, my Grandma Rock. So the Canadians, instead of running, uh, fought back. And within about a week and a half, they were able to push the German troops back out of that area and regain control of that territory to, to free that part of Belgium from, from German occupation. Now, when you think about all the, the circumstances that they experienced, it's, it's clear that these were courageous people that were driven by principle, that were driven by certain values, and those values, fighting for liberty, freedom, uh, oppression from evil, are all ones that we continue to benefit from over 100 years later. We don't, we don't, we never, I never met my great-grandfather, obviously. He died decades before I was born, but men like this fought, bled, and died in horrendous circumstances for our freedom and exuded incredible courage Because they were principled individuals. Now, hopefully we don't experience something of that magnitude in our lifetimes, but we are constantly in a spiritual battle. And it is horrendous and it is depressing and it is dangerous. The book of Ephesians talks about the spiritual battle that we we are in, that we battle not just against flesh and blood, but against principalities, powers in this present darkness in the heavenly realms. And it also takes courage to be able to fight back. Naturally, what we're tempted to do is to just give up. We might just give up. Uh, we might be tempted to join the enemy even because they have the majority of the field. We might be tempted to run away or we might be tempted as we see so often in the Christian church to pretend that nothing's happening just to form our holy huddles and, and to pray that it all will go away. But a biblical response is different than that. And the overall message I want to communicate through our study of this passage together is that no matter how brutal the opposition, no matter how brutal the battle, we must maintain our courage. And we're able to do this when we are reminded and then choose to believe that God has got this. God is still in control. God is still working out his plan There are certain things we should do and certain things we shouldn't do to contribute to it. But God is still very much sovereign over the affairs of men. And God is working out his plan as we remain faithful to his purposes and plan. And guess what? We may lose a few battles along the way, but at the end of the day, we already know who has won. Our king has won. We know what his his, uh, ultimate plan is. And because he has won, we participate in his Victory, which at some point in the future will be made evident to all. So in Acts chapter 22, we have an example of an early Christian under fire, under intense persecution, experiencing some very difficult circumstances. We can learn, A, how to respond to persecution and challenges from him, how to fight the good fight. Secondly, we can learn a thing or two about God and be reminded of how God works in this world. So the context, Paul had been ministering in Asia Minor. He decides to go back to Jerusalem, if you recall. He's warned, don't go. You're going to be arrested. He goes anyway. He has a time of warm fellowship with his Christian brothers and sisters. They have to deal with this issue where he's being accused of being a lawless one by the early Christian community. He clarifies that. Then he's arrested by the Roman officials. The Roman officials attempted to whip him just before they whipped him, he said, I'm a Roman citizen. They backed off. And now we're into the next episode of this period of Paul's life where he's still under arrest. And the Roman magistrate takes him and permits him to be interrogated by a Jewish council, sort of a religious court, if you will, called the Sanhedrin. And probably the reason why the Roman official did that was for political reasons. He wanted to make sure that he was still sort of more or less in good standing with the Jews because the Romans were an occupying force in the land that we call Israel today. They were occupying that. The Jews were under their military and, and um, judicial authority, but they're always wanting to you know keep, keep some connections, keep some camaraderie. He knows the Jews are upset, so he passes Paul off to be interrogated by um, the Jewish uh, leaders. So here's what it says in Acts 22, verse 30. But on the next day, desiring to know the real reason why he was being accused by the Jews, he unbound him. So the he here is the tribune, the Roman magistrate. And commanded the chief priests and all the council, that's the Sanhedrin, to meet. And he brought Paul down and set him before them. So you'll notice it says, desiring to know the real reason. Even though he already knew Paul was innocent, he he tried to whip him. He was told he's not allowed to whip him, so he, he backs off. But he passes him off to the Jewish leaders. There, there's like a certain sinister nature to this individual. He just, he just can't seem to just release the guy. That's what he should have done. Just, just release Paul. But he's putting him through all these ordeals. And, you know, Paul in his humanity might have been thinking, why, Lord? Why me? Why are you allowing this to happen? But bear with me. We discover that good things happen as a result. Now, one might assume, so you have the Roman army, their magistrate was about to whip Paul, realized he couldn't under law. One might assume that when Paul gets passed off to a religious court, things would go better for him. After all, aren't religious people supposed to be a little more honorable? Aren't religious people supposed to be marked by a little more integrity? Wouldn't one assume that if, if you put a, an accused man in front of a court, an institution like the Sanhedrin, who was, com- was composed of men that were immersed in God's law, that he'd get a fair shake? Wouldn't you assume that they'd treat him with integrity? Wouldn't you assume that he would perhaps even be released? But you'll notice that the conduct of the religious leaders is actually worse than the conduct of the Roman Tribune, because when the Roman Tribune is confronted, he he stops the whipping. But look how the religious leaders respond. And the lesson I want you to see here is that when Christ is not in the mix, regardless of whether it's a court, a religious court, a civil court, an educational institution— um, a church, a seminary, a denomination, no matter what the institution is, if Christ is not at the center, you're always going to find corruption. Because the politics of evil are everywhere. Without Christ transforming work, you can't trust anybody. Any body, any religious body, any court, any cluster of clergymen, without Christ at the center, there's always going to be immoral behavior and a lack of integrity. Because integrity and morality matter very little to people that aren't centered on Christ. And looking intently at the council, Paul said, Brothers, I have lived my life before God in all good conscience up to this day. You might think, well, Paul, he's bragging on himself again. Well, he's in a court. So generally in a court, if you're innocent, you declare your innocence. And Paul was being accused of being lawless. So he declares his innocence. There's nothing wrong with that. And one would also expect then that those religious leaders would say, okay, well, let's let's examine the evidence, but or at least let's debate it rationally. Let's let's say, well, actually, Paul, we don't agree. We have some evidence, we have some photographs, we have some video, we have some recordings, we have we've done some detective work. We we want to show you that that the accusations made against you are obvious, but there's none of that. Look what it says. And the high priest Ananias, not not the intern, not Frank, the 19-year-old intern that just stumbled out of his first semester of seminary that doesn't know better, but the high priest Ananias commanded those who stood by him to strike him on the mouth. (laughs) It's kind of an immature guttural response. They, they slap Paul across the face as he's trying to defend himself. It, sh- it shows the, the evil in these men's heart toward the gospel. So Paul, of course, is taken back and he says, God is going to strike you, you whitewash wall. Are you s- sitting to judge me according to the law and yet contrary to the law, you order me to be struck? So whitewashed walls, like you're covering yourself up with white paint, but behind it, there's still a lot of nastiness. So it's, a, it's an insult. He's, he's confronting their hypocrisy. So then everyone who's observing, one would think, would say, okay, you know what? Yeah, you took it too far, buddy. You actually just violated God's law yourself by physically assaulting someone without any reason to do so. But no, those who stood by said, will you revile God's high priest? So they, they they defend the priest. Paul then one would assume would get defensive and try to justify his own behavior. After all, when you're confronted, isn't that kind of human tendency? I I immediately justify my own behavior. Paul said, I did not know, brothers, that he was the high priest, for it is written, you shall not speak evil of a ruler of your people. So Paul immediately apologizes. So Paul here is appealing to his testimony. He's physically assaulted. He's trying to plead for his uh, innocence The high priest scolds, uh, the high priest has him hit, and Paul scolds the high priest. Doesn't strike the high priest, scolds him. And those that are watching don't really seem to care how the high priest acted. So the question is how is Paul going to respond? And he takes what we would call the moral high road. He apologizes, and he actually quotes, which is strategic because it's also serving to show he's familiar with the law, right? He quotes from Exodus 22, 28, you shall, which reads, you shall not revile God, pretty basic, nor curse a ruler of your people. He does not affirm Ananias' actions, but he shows honor to the office. Now, this is why, this is where this gets fascinating. Think about the time in history when Paul says this. Is it before the cross or after the cross? After the cross, right? It's after the death, burial, resurrection, and ascension of the Lord Jesus Christ. If you've read the book of Romans, who is Paul's high priest? His high priest is Jesus. So this man, Ananias, his office is actually null and void. In the eyes of God, he's not even a high priest anymore. His office is moot. His job has expired, like bad milk. It's beyond the expiry date. And Paul could have said at this point in time, well, I don't believe in the high priest. My high priest is Jesus, which would have been accurate. It would have been theologically accurate and would have been true. But instead, Paul, without affirming the office of the high priest, uses this as an opportunity to show that he, as an average citizen, he was formerly a member of the Sanhedrin, he was a a Pharisee, but he stepped out of that role. He's showing that this average guy whose life has been changed by the Lord Jesus Christ is more righteous and more aware of the law of God than the guy that holds the highest religious office in the land. So think about that. Without Christ, you can hold the highest religious office in the land, you could hold the highest office in your home. You could hold the highest office in the church. You could hold the highest office in any institution. And without Christ, corruption will, will sneak in and you will not be able to be trusted to adjudicate, to make good decisions because without Christ, you're, you're like a, a boat being tossed to and fro, un, tethered to nothing on the seas of life. Now, you look at, it's not hard to make some application to our current culture. The more Canada drifts away from God, the more it becomes untethered, unhitched, if you will, from God's law. Look at our courts. There's still much good in our courts. We try our best to respect them. But you see some of the rulings and you're thinking, are you courts of justice or are you courts of social justice? because you're sounding a whole lot like courts of social justice promoting the woke agenda of the day, then you are actually concerned with justice. And if you push back, it's not the court's best interest to hear this case dismissed. Really? That's what we get? That's what we get as Canadians? And that's because as courts become untethered to Christian morality, they're going to tether themselves to what? the ever-moving, ever-changing ideologies of the moment. And so they, you, you lose trust. And this same principle applies to all public institutions, to schools. You're like, do I, tr- do I really want to send my kid to that university? Like, what are they going to be exposed to? Do I really want to tether myself to employment in this big corporation? They don't seem to have a moral foundation or standard. And this is it's becoming increasingly challenging for Christians to function in this society because of these very things. Now, here's the good news. You might look out, like the Canadians looked out at the Germans and saw these massive, experienced soldiers moving their way. They'd already had a little bit of time to, to get some experience into their belts and think, we're, we're overwhelmed. And you could look out at our society and say, oh my, the the, the banks. The banks have bought into the woke antichrist agenda. The, in, the educational institutions, many of in the medical institutions, the politicians, like, we're being overwhelmed. We're being overrun. They seem so united. But the good news is, is they're not as united as they appear. Because when evil people gather together and form coalitions or organizations or establishments or agendas or vote for specific people into political office or whatever it might be. There's no true benevolence behind it. There's no true love behind it. There's no pr- true transcendent divine principle behind it. So they, they have their fighting and bickering and agendas uh, between themselves. And it, it can be frustrating to look out, but don't don't be fooled into thinking that they are as united as they might appear to be. Now, Paul knows this about evildoers. He looks at the Sanhedrin. They're all there together staring him down. They're all there together defending the high priest and giving Paul the stink eye. But Paul knows something about this group. There's two factions within it, the Pharisees and the Sadducees. And he knows that they have some differences, and he's about to expose those differences to break them apart and to disunite them. Now, when Paul perceived that one part were Sadducees and the other Pharisees, he cried it to the council. Keep in mind, he used to be a Pharisee. Brothers, I am a Pharisee, a son of a Pharisee. It is with respect to the hope and the resurrection of the dead that I am on trial. So this is true because part of the Christian faith is hope and a resurrection. But out of all the doctrines, he pulls this one and he drops it down in front of them because he knows they disagree about this. And when he had said this, a dissension arose between the Pharisees and the Sadducees, and the assembly was divided. For the Sadducees say that there is no resurrection, nor angel, nor spirit, but the Pharisees acknowledge them all. Then a great clamor arose, and some of the scribes of the Pharisees' party stood up and contended sharply. Keep in mind, these are the guys about ready to, off with his head. We find nothing wrong in this man. Wow, how fickle. What if a spirit or an angel spoke to him? So again, they're, they're giving a, a a slap on the face now metaphorically to the Sadducees who denied the existence of angels. And when the dissension became violent, the tribune, afraid that Paul was would be torn to pieces by them, commanded the soldiers to go down and take him away from among them by force and bring him into the barracks. So on one hand, we have the Sadducees, which would be, I would say more orthodox, their beliefs would be would overlap with some of biblical Christianity. We believe in angels, we believe in demons, we believe in a spirit world, we believe in eternal life, we believe that the whole of the Bible is authoritative, and we believe in revelation. Obviously, they had denied Christ, so the whole house of cards falls apart at the end. But the Sadducees only believed in the first five books of the Old Testament. The, the remaining 34, they, they didn't see them as authoritative. The prophetic books, and narrative books, the historical books, didn't read them. They denied the existence of spirit beings. They denied the existence of eternal life. And they denied, uh, obviously, the resurrection. So they were very materialistic, but religious, which is kind of weird. Kind of like atheists who are materialistic, but pretty convinced that they know everything. And they get world, the world figured out and have their own morality. So Paul knows this about them, and he drives a wedge between them. Don't be afraid of doing that. Don't be afraid of dividing your opponents, pointing out their differences, getting them feuding among themselves. It almost seems kind of unchristian. But Paul does it here. He he divides them and fragments them by pointing out their dissimilarities. And I would say one of the key places we're seeing that, and I'll just say it. We should capitalize upon it. Is in the clash between the radical feminists and the radical transgender advocates. Like all of a sudden, they have like a major problem. Okay, if we're promoting women over here, but we're denying the existence of femaleness over here, how's this all work out? When the male jumps on his bike and wants to ride in, a female race around some track and wins. Is that feminism? What is that? So pointing out these cataclysmic divisions is strategic. And we should do that. We should drive a wedge between advocates of these antichrist ideologies so that their ideologies will also ultimately fall apart because they are destroying people's lives. So Paul here affirms his belief in the resurrection and he wins the Pharisees over temporarily and they're embarrassingly fickle, embarrassingly fickle. And Paul lives to preach another day. Well, here's where the passage really gets into some, some good stuff. And that is that we are reminded now of God's work in it. And one of the undying truths that Christians probably should be reminding themselves of, if not daily, Every week (laughs) regularly, is that God's promises never fail. God's promises never fail. If God says it, he will do it. God's promises never fail. The Bible says the following night, the Lord stood by him and said, take courage. There's our key word. Take courage. For as you have testified to the facts about me in Jerusalem, so you must testify also in Rome. This is good news. Take courage. Paul, you've done a great job representing me in Jerusalem. I'm not releasing you yet. You have another assignment. I want you to go do the same thing in Rome. Now, when you're suffering, when I'm suffering, when we're feeling a little bit of pressure from the public, being called names, maybe you're being trash-talked on social media or you're in jail because you spoke out against some godless ideology in the country or you resisted tyranny or whatever it might be. And you're like, Lord, please rescue me. And if he doesn't rescue you right away, the, the natural tendency is to start to think, oh, did he abandon me? Like, Why is he allowing me to suffer? But when we step back from the immediate pain of the moment and we we, we choose to believe that God is working all things out for our good and for his honor and glory, it allows us to endure a little bit longer because when we're suffering, our audience tends to expand, doesn't it? Because people are watching you. They're like, how's this guy gonna respond to this challenge? Like, is his faith real? Is this just pastor talk? Or is this guy actually believe what he says to be true? People are asking that of you at your work, in your family, your extended family, the people that don't know you. Your testimony over the long haul is far more powerful than some momentary exhibition of faithfulness that you might show. So sometimes God allows us to suffer over an extended period of time, but he's, we need to believe he is using this for his honor and for our good. So Paul's, Paul gets the message. God says, "You know, well done, Paul, but just so you know, you're not released yet. You're going on to, on to Rome to testify on my behalf. So here we have a reminder that God is bigger than the deadliest foe. God is in charge, God is sovereign. Just say it to yourself regularly. You're sovereign, you're in charge, you're the king of kings, you're the lord of lords, God's got this. Now we have a little bit of insight into uh, provided to us from the text into the way godless people connive and deceive and strategize against God's people. So we've been, if you break it down this way, we've been called to be courageous for Christ We've been reminded that God is sovereign over all things, but now we have this little window open and we get a little bit of background insight into how evil people connive against the purposes of God. And it's going to happen differently in each culture, each context, each circumstance, but the conniving, the deceiving, the conspiracies are ripe. We live in a spiritually charged world and there are individuals and forces at work all the time to try to take you down, to try to diminish the gospel. People are offended when they are told, you're a sinner, there's one king, you have to submit to him. That offends people by nature. It offended many of us before we were humbled by God's grace. So, these religious leaders, who are supposedly all into the law, and so offended that Paul supposedly is not obeying the law, take the law into their own hands, violate the law, and become judge, jury, and executioners. So it says here, this is verse 12 now, when it was day, the Jews made a plot and bound themselves by an oath neither to eat or drink till they had killed Paul. These are extremists. These, these, this is religious extremism right here. We, they are so hateful against Paul, they're not even gonna eat and drink until this guy's dead. There were more than 40 who made this conspiracy? They went to the chief priests and elders and said, "We have strictly bound ourselves by an oath to taste no food till we have killed Paul." So now they even let the religious, leader knows, know, religious uh, leaders know about their plan, and they're not corrected. It's like a bunch of Christians approach Pastor Aaron after the service. Forty of them. We're planning on killing someone, and I'm like, "Okay, do you want the knife?" You know, it's like they, they go along with it in in violation of the very law. That they're they accusing Paul of breaking, murdering. An extrajudicial extra execution, we would call it. So when the chief priests and the elders had said, We have strictly bound ourselves by an oath to taste no food till we have killed Paul. Now, therefore, you, along with the council, give notice to the tribune to bring him down to you. This is their conspiracy. As though, notice, deception. As though you were going to determine his case more exactly. So lie, cheat, set things up, smoke and mirrors. And we are ready to kill him before he comes near. I, I'm not sure that we're ever going to experience an analogous event. But in principle, we will and do all the time. There are organizations, there are individuals, there are wealthy people that hate the gospel of Jesus Christ and want to destroy the work of the gospel in this world. Some of them are called universities in Canada. Some of them are corporations, shareholders, people that produce movies out of Hollywood. Have you noticed, by the way, in Hollywood, you'd be hard pressed to find any movie of any genre that ever uses Muhammad's name in vain? but probably 60% of them have Jesus' name being used in vain because there's a spiritual agenda there. There's a hatred towards Christ. And so we live in a world where there's going to be plots to destroy God's people. Now, what I want to do, though, is I want to issue a bit of a warning because I know a lot of weird things have happened in our world over the last three years, and some folks have made it like their full-time job to be conspiracy theorists. And while there are many conspiracies that are proven true, we need to be principled people. So I want to give you some principles that you would, you would do well to uh, consider and abide by when you're identifying plots or evil in our world. So let's start with hunches, okay? Let's say you have a hunch. I have a hunch that there's a, a plot going on here. I have a hunch that someone is up to something, Okay? Well, we are called as Christians not to bear false witness. And so hunches are not sufficient. They're not a sufficient means. They're not sufficient evidence for us to publicly declare, so-and-so has a plan. Such-and-such is up to something. This organization, I know they're going to do ABC. You're like, well, how do you know? I have a hunch. Well, your hunch might be because you ate some bad pizza last night. Like, we're people of the Bible. We're people of truth. And so... If, if we're looking at the world around us and we're like, one of the big problems in our culture is lying, we don't want to become people who bear false witness as well. So if we don't have evidence, if we don't have proof, we zip our lips. If we have evidence and we have proof that something's afoot, we can talk about it. But hunches are not a sufficient means of determining that which is true. In fact, they, they demonstrate a certain substance lessness about us, and small-mindedness. And we don't want to be small-minded, and we don't want to be people accused of being without evidence or substance. Secondly, we don't stoke fear. We deal with facts. We deal with evidences as Christians. We don't stoke fear with vagaries. So one of my pet peeves, maybe on social media, someone says something like, it's about to happen, dot, dot, dot. You're like, what? Just wait and see. For what? And the next year, look out, dot, dot, dot. For what? Are you trying to present yourself as some sort of discerning, insightful person, but never actually identify what it is you're talking about so you can be right and wrong at the same time? Like, we don't do that as Christians. We don't, we don't throw out fearful, fearful, statements with no substance, no evidence, just because that's what people tend to do these days on social media. We deal with facts. You read a website, it's like clear to this organization has a nasty agenda, this is their agenda, we criticize that. Someone stands up at a podium and says, here's my agenda for Canada, and it's wrong and godless, we criticize that. Someone teaches a lecture at a university that's wrong and godless, we criticize that. We don't We don't deal in the realm of the mysterious, the unknown, the conjecture, hunches, weird social media posts that make you look smart with no real substance behind it. We don't do that as Christians. Third, evil plots are usually far more simple than you think for the very reason that evildoers have depraved minds, and they're not as organized or is put together than a lot of people think. I heard consp- I've heard people articulate conspiracy theories that literally would require tens, if not hundreds of thousands of people to all be in on it, and everyone's absolutely quiet. No one ever spills the beans for any reason. Like, think rationally. Now, even if some of those things ultimately appear to be true, give it time for them to manifest themselves. In the meanwhile, we have all sorts of very obvious lies and very obvious agendas in front of us, we need to be focusing on those, not concocting possibilities, not promoting our own hunches. This is not a Christian way of thinking about life, and it's unhelpful. And it actually creates people who see boogeymen around every bush, every tree, who literally lie, who promote falsehoods, and are absolutely convinced that they're true without any substance or evidence. It's not appropriate. Finally, stop watching homespun, grainy videos out of context with wild, fanciful claims promoting some new conspiracy. Put that stuff aside. Deal with the facts. Again, go onto a university website. Read through the syllabus in the social sciences curriculum. You'll see what they believe, and you can criticize that. Listen to political speeches. There's lots of criticizing in political speeches. Look at some of the policies, the mandates that are publicized in Canadian culture. There's all sorts of enemies for us to fight. The last thing we need to be doing is making up enemies without evidence, without substance. It's not appropriate. It's literally, literally you're lying. You're literally bearing false witness. And how can we criticize the world around us for bearing false witness, if we are bearing false witness, and if our epistemology, our our view of knowledge is so reduced that we believe that truth is based on a hunch. Truth is not based on a hunch. So these are some things for us to consider as Christians. And finally, let's focus on solutions. Let's criticize that which we know to be true. Let's speak truth into the lies, and that'll keep you so busy you won't have time for these fanciful conspiracy theories that frankly make most of us look like fools, especially in the Christian community if they're being promoted by Christians. Well, because of the lies we face, I'm very concerned that Christians not engage in this kind of fanciful speculation, but we show ourselves to be thoughtful, rational, evidential, critical thinkers that can observe, listen, dissect, and break down the philosophies and evils Uh, of our age. One of the things I love about the Bible, and this happens time and time and time again, is God often uses, God is ultimately the hero of the Bible, we know that, but God often uses a human hero to accomplish his purposes. And many of these human heroes that he uses are completely unexpected. It's like if you've, some of you maybe have positions at work where you hire people. You get a stack of resumes I assume when you go through the stack of the resumes, you look for the best candidate. You don't look for the worst candidate. It's like, I'm going to pick the worst candidate. But time and time again, when God's about to use someone for heroic purposes, he picks like the worst candidate. And we see this, for instance, in, think about Jericho. So who's the heroine of the the story? Rahab, like, seriously, Lord, you're going to use a non-Jewish, Gentile, female prostitute? To rescue your people? Like, that's not expected. Israel's looking for a king. All these big, strapping, hulkish, mature sons of Jesse step forward. God's like, no, I want to use the pipsqueak that's out in the field uh, managing the sheep. Right? Time and time and time again, God picks the second-born. In, in, in an ancient culture based upon the law of primogeniture, the, the, the eldest was, was primary. The, the youngest basically got nothing, but God elevates the secondborn. In a heavily patriarchal culture, he often uses a woman instead of a man. and he often uses people with inexperience or youth. Now, in our culture, it tends to be, sadly, that if you're on the younger side, you're cool. you're hip. You know, you're the people pay attention to. And when you get older, you're like, eh, you're kind of over the hill. You know, you're washed up. But in most cultures, it's flipped. The young people, who cares about you? It's the elderly, the people with gray hair, the people with no hair, the people with experience, the people that have been around the block a lot, that are elevated, that are esteemed. So we got to kind of translate this in our mind. So in this particular event... And by the way, naming is also important. If you're named, you're significant. There's significance in the name. In this story, the hero is unnamed, and he's a young man. So really the only thing he's got going for him in culture is that he's a man, which would enable him to get into the barracks and make this announcement. But we still don't know his name. All we know is his relationship to Paul. He was Paul's nephew. The guy doesn't even get a name. Paul gets his name plastered all over the Bible for people to read about for decades, centuries, millennia to come. This guy doesn't even get his name recorded in the Bible. But it says, Now the son of Paul's sister heard of their ambush, so he went and entered the barracks and told Paul. Paul called one of the centurions and said, Take this young man to the tribune, for he has something to tell him. And he took him and brought him to the tribune and said, Paul the prisoner called me and asked me to bring this young man. Again, it's emphasizing his youth. Remember Paul said, let no one look down on you because of your youth? In this culture, youth was insignificant. So it's emphasized three times now. As he has something to say to you, the tribune took him by the hand. He must have been quite young because it'd be kind of weird. You go in and, you know, a six foot five adult man, hey, let me hold your hand. He's probably a little boy, very young. He takes him by the hand and he says, what is it that you have to tell me? And he said, the Jews have agreed to bring you to ask you to bring Paul down to the council tomorrow as though they were going to inquire something more closely about him. But do not be persuaded by them, for more than 40 of their men are lying in ambush for him. A little bit excessive, I would say, in terms of numbers. Who have bound themselves by an oath neither to eat nor drink till they have killed him. And now they are ready, waiting for your consent. So the tribune dismissed the young man, charging him, tell no one, that you have informed me of these things. And the Tribune Acts and Paul is uh, released to preach another sermon. So here we have God using an unexpected person as the human hero of the story. And what we notice about this man is that he's young, but he's still active, He's still involved. He's young, but he's active. He doesn't use his youth as an excuse to say, well, I'm not ready. I saw, I saw the lie, but what do I know? Brothers and sisters, there are umpteen dozen excuses that you could concoct to stay on the sidelines and not to call out lies, to participate in the rescue or redemption of God's people. I'm not verbally skilled enough. I'm not old enough. I'm too old. I'm not known in culture. I'm an introvert. I'm an immigrant. Who's going to listen to me? There's all sorts of excuses we can concoct to remain passive in the face of evil. But this young man does what's right. Secondly, he doesn't conceal the lie. We don't conceal lies. We call out evil. We identify evil, evil behavior, evil actions, and we're unafraid to label it. And ultimately, we trust in God to rescue his own. He's kind of putting his neck on the line, I would say, to have an audience with the Roman Tribune. The Roman Tribune could have said, off with your head. Now it's your turn to be uh, whipped or whatever it might be. But he trusts in God to rescue his own. And we should do the same. It takes an army to beat the enemy, not a general, not a cluster of sergeants. It takes an army to beat the enemy. And the church of Jesus Christ is the army of the living God. And each of us has a role to play. There's no passive players in an army, and there's no passive players in the church. No excuses, don't conceal lies, do the right thing, and trust in God to use you as he sees fit. And remember that in all of this, God is bigger than our deadliest foe. So let's take courage. Let's be encouraged. God is working in the world around us. He will fulfill his promises. He will redeem his own. In the meanwhile, let's study the tactics of our enemies. And let's choose courage over timidity and allow God to use us as he sees fit.